Uh, I hear some of you... Uh, how many of you have now watched Ghost in the Shell 2? Some of you had a, a viewing... Have all the, all, yes, wonderful. Okay. And I hear some of you also watched the, the, the first film, Ghost in the Shell. So you've got the background to that. Marvellous. Uh, one of the most honoured anime films of all time. Um, I don't know how many of these Annie Awards, Awards about Animation... Uh, it got, but it got nominated for quite a few at the time, and it was an official s- selection to be shown at the Cannes Film Festival in 2004. And it got lots of rave reviews uh, from things like Empire Magazine and Hot Dog Magazine and so on and so forth. Philadelphia Weekly. <laughs> Philadelphia Weekly, indeed. Yeah. Uh, mainly picking up on the visuals of the film, that the film was visually stunning in a, a wonderful amalgam of traditional cell animation and computer-generated graphics and so on. I think this review from the New York Times uh, by Benona Dargis, if I've pronounced that correctly, uh, is quite uh, apposite and sets it up well. Uh, androids don't dream of electric sheep, uh, a reference to a Philip K. Dick novel that the film Blade Runner was based on. Don't dream of electric sheep in uh, Maramu Oshie's hallucinatory meditation on life in the shadow of the machine world. Ghost from Michelle to Innocence. They dream of suicide, an unlikely act of violence that one android or gynoid, a sexual pet with a tragic face and luridly flexible limbs, commits by clawing at its synthetic skin like a grieving widow. In this plaintive, often stunningly beautiful anime, where sex dolls commit virtual seppuku, against this world of film noir intrigue, philosophical speculation, eye-popping images, and serious science fiction cool. A toxic cloud hangs over all tomorrow's parties. That really, I think that review kind of really sums up the kind of existential feel um, of the movie and picks up on some of the, the particularly interesting imagery. And we've got a hand on the back there. Yeah, sorry, really quickly. Yeah. Uh, how long did it take to make Years, several years. There's one scene in particular. If you've seen the, the seen it, the um, the the parade scene. Um, it's like three minutes long, and I think they spent two or three years rendering that scene uh, alongside everything else. So it, the, the whole film as a whole took at least kind of three years in production to make, um, which is why they don't churn these out at a huge great rate of knots. But when they do, they can be very good. And there's a whole kind of franchise around Ghost in a, in a Shell from the original movie, which is just being re-released um, in a uh, Ghost in a Shell 2.0, kind of rebuffed, touched-up version, as the directors are wont to do nowadays occasionally. That'll be out on Blu-ray scene. And the, uh, they start off with a... a uh, uh, I've forgotten the Japanese word for comic book. Good grief. Kind of well. Anyway, manga, yeah. Uh, the original manga series, thank you. And uh, there's uh, been a two two series of television um, anime series set in a sort of very close parallel world to the Ghost in the Shell universe, same characters and so on, slightly different storyline, and a TV movie and a PlayStation game, and so it's it spawned from the original manga. Get the word in there to remind myself of it. Um, this whole uh, kind of franchise. And here's the uh, director and screenwriter, Marumu Oshi, and his uh, Basset Hound. Um, he's, this guy's obsessed with Basset Hounds. Every one of his films features one or more Basset Hounds. Uh, you have to kind of go Basset Hound spotting when you watch one of his films. He'll turn up in posters or as a character in the film or whatever. Um, 
And again, this review is quite good on the, the kind of director that he is from his films. Um, acclaimed director of animation classics like Pat Labor and the original Ghost in the Shell. Live action films as well, like um, Avalon, which I highly recommend. Uh, a stylistic master akin to Ridley Scott, whilst having a philosophical bent similar, similar to the Russian director Andrei Tarkovsky, who did um, the original version of Sol- Solaris, not the one with George Clooney in it. Um, uh, Russian director. His works are meditations on what it means to be human as much as they are techno actioneers, and his direction veers between Scott's intimate lens and Tarkovsky's remote gaze. I think we'll see that very much in one of the clips I'll show in a moment. Um, this is a poster clip from Avalon, 2001. And this is Basset Hound again. Uh, the score and the sound from this movie, they put a lot of effort into the score and sound for this movie and directed it very much in trying to push this in the West as well as seen by the cows showing and so on. The sound design was by the same guy who did the sound designs for the Star Wars movies um, from George Lucas uh, Company and uh, Kenjo Kawai uh, nominated score and he did the same you know, guy who did the score for the original Ghost in the Shell movie. Uh, and as Oshie says about his films, the future I describe in the movies is actually not the future. It's the present. So if the future in the movies looks very dark and very sad, unfortunately, that's the way our present is. It's saying, okay, yeah, I'm making sci-fi movies, but actually these are movies about us now. Um, they are movies about the human state now, and the things that we fear, particularly in relation to our relationship with technology. Um, so a quick plot synopsis, just to iron it out for those. I, I mean, I, when I first watched the film, I admit I had to watch it two or three times before the kind of all the plot details kind of sorted into place for me, and it made sense. Um, Japanese um, filmmakers very much don't do the Hollywood spoon feeding you at the beginning and saying, "Here's the setup, and here's what the characters are, and he, the, here's the good guy, and she's the bad guy, and here we off we go." Um, you have to kind of watch it a couple of times usually to kind of get the nuances of it. So, as it says at the beginning, a future time when most human thoughts have been accelerated by AI and an external memory can be shared on a universal matrix. Which is why the characters in the film have these conversations where they suddenly start quoting obscure for them bits of Milton or the Bible or Nietzsche or because everyone's brain is hooked up to, like, Wikipedia, you know, and uh, they think, oh, I want a, a suitable something to say in this conversation, and uh, the metrics give it to them, and they, they spell all these quotations at each other, like they're walking kind of dictionaries of quotations, because they are walking dictionaries of quotations. Um, so, Locus Solus Corporation sex dolls, or gynoids, uh, Locus Solus is Latin for solitary place. Uh, these dolls are going berserk and they're killing the users before self-destructing, committing super cool. And uh, Bato and Togusa from Section 9, uh, the sort of security agency tasked with investigating cybercrime, uh, investigate. And uh, let me show you the clip from where Bato um, hunts the goinoid. Uh, a particularly impressive um, bit of 3D animation going on. So, um, kind of, Bato kind of helps it commit suicide in a way there. That little creepy, help me, whisper voice coming out of it. Um, this great juxtaposition of the. Uh, I mean, I quite like the fact that we, we see it in his kind of computer 3D view of the, the guy who's been shot and his blood 
brains being kind of splattered over the wall, but we just see that in sort of computerized outline. So there's great violence there emanating from this like porcelain-like, tiny child-like doll figure who is incredibly kind of artistic and beautiful and yet then reveals this kind of sort of mask of death, kind of skeletal um, death sort of underneath this, this veneer of beauty. Uh, Bato's last partner from the previous film, Major Mojiko, uh, in, pre- in the end of the previous film, she leaves her um, cyborg existence behind and kind of um, her mind goes onto the internet as it uh, uh, merges and amalgamates with a, uh, an artificial program that's become sentient uh, in the web. And ever since Bato has been wondering what's become of her and will she uh, ever chat up again, and of course she does uh, towards the end of this film uh, in, a, in a way. Uh, Togusa, Bato's new partner, is a minimally modified human being. So he is the kind of most human of the characters um, in the film, uh, the, the least uh, capable in kind of physical terms and, and, and things. Uh, he's the kind of audience eye character that films often have. And they gradually go, they go in this investigation to the uh, police forensic officer Harway, who's uh, named after Donna Harway, an American author of a book called Simeon's Cyborgs and Women, The Reinvention of Nature. And she suggests that the Gonoids aren't malfunctioning. She thinks they're actually committing suicide. Which, of course, the the distinction between, oh, the machine is broken and the machine wants to kill itself is quite a uh, crucial, uh, interesting distinction. I'm going to show you quite a long um, scene from Harway's lab uh, because I think it's a good uh, introduction to the the evocation of the feelings that the film is is making and what that would be review said about this kind of remote very kind of distanced out of body experience kind of view that the, the director sometimes gives us with the, the smooth very slow camera moves around things that are very kind of medicalized in this lab and so on uh, the deep philosophical conversation they're having the ideas they're playing with and so on so here's the scene from uh, Haraway's lab Her face just kind of flips up at the end there just to remind you. She's smoking away night into the dozen, of course, because it's not going to harm her because she's a cyborg. Well, this development of technology starts affecting people's behaviour, their interactions, their conversations, their, um, you know, what's moral and what's not. So, whether they're, uh, I think the filming in that is is great, they're a little repeated helmet, and then they go back to these dolls that it's it's almost like something from a, a liberated Nazi war camp at the end of the Second World War. And this calling into question of the distinction between humans and, and uh, people. So they gradually fail that, uh, this trail of clues, um, a hologram in the book. Play uh, that clip again, because this is the crucial clue in the, the movie, although I miss it the first time around. Um, so he's... Um, one of the places they investigate, he's got this uh, book, and the book is called The Doll, a picture of a doll from cover. Inside is a picture of a girl, a hologram of a girl, inside The Doll. So then they go from there uh, to a Yakuza den, and uh, from the Yakuza den to a maze of illusions constructed by a hacker called Kim, 
who is foiled with Bateau with a bit of help from his friend on high, uh, the Major. And finally to the Locus Solis' offshore production facility, where Bateau and a downloaded fragment of the Major, who goes into one of the dolls, uh, discovers that these goinos are produced under rather morally suspect circumstances um, that explain their suicidal behaviour and uh, make sense of that image of the girl inside the doll. Uh, basically, the corporation have been uh, dubbing the souls of um, kidnapped children into the programming of their sex dolls to make them more lifelike and appealing. Shiva should go up with fine at that stage. Um, so that's the, the secret of why they were selling so well, but under very morally dubious uh, circumstances. And uh, someone in the corporation had found out about this and advised the girls what you need to do is kind of make trouble so that people will investigate this, and that's why the dolls have been murdering the people who are, in effect, abusing them, and then committing suicide, committing seppuku, because they've been virtually raped, and so on. Uh, it draws on all sorts of interesting uh, sources. I was mentioning, um, you know, they were tossing in lines that were really derived from Isaac Asimov's uh, Three Laws of Robotics, and so on. Um, the ghost in the machine was a famous phrase... Uh, from the English philosopher Gilbert Ryle, uh, who used it to make uh, fun of the idea that there's this distinction between the mind, uh, the brain, and the mind. Sort of belief in, oh, no, a ghost in the, in, the, in the machine, ghost in the shell. Um, film Blade Runner, uh, Ridley Scott, um, doubt images like the close-up with reflections in the eye. Um, one of the androids in the Blade Runner film is a sex doll. Um, Harrison's Ford character is a bit like Batow, a bit sort of uh, isolated and withdrawn, living on his own in an apartment and so on. There's lots of sort of uh, the domination by Asian culture of the surroundings and so on. There's lots of sort of resonances there that he's pulling on. Um, Hans Bellmer was an artist known for his sculpture of life-size pubescent female dolls produced in the mid-1930s. Um, there's a catalogue, um, one of his very strange, rather sort of disturbing um, structures, but they clearly in the film draw upon this kind of artistic structure in the, in the construction of the dolls and the robots that they're using. I think it was a uh, uh, protest against Nazism, this art. Um, one of the uh, reviewers, I'm sorry, it was from the Philadelphia Weekly's uh, reviewer, says that the subtitle of the film, Innocence, is completely inexplicable. Um, when actually it's the key to the, what the entire major central theme of the film. Um, and I think that the central theme of the film is the human search for existential happiness. Or to put it another way, the, the human uh, desire and search for heaven. That's what the film's about, I think. Um, there's this poem that's repeated twice um, in the film, like elephants in the forest. Let no one walk alone, committing no sin, with very few wishes like elephants in the forest. This poem, I think, expresses the idea that while animals are innocents, innocence eludes humans because of their capacity for sin and their complex desires for the future, a bit of, of a Buddhist ideas coming in there maybe, which lead them to fear death. We've got uh, desires for the future, we fear death, and some of our desires are sinful, and all of that together means that we're not innocent, neither morally innocent, nor innocent of our kind of existential state in the universe. Um, whereas an elephant in the forest just kind of going along doing its things, fulfilling very simple desires and so on, 
um, doesn't have this problem. Uh, and Kim the Hacker, um, the scene with Kim the, the Hacker, I'm going to play a little bit of that, because he very much has this, this speech about the difference, if any, between humans and, and dolls, which is quite central to that theme in the movie. And then he picks up on the, the lots of animal imagery that there is in the music in the movie. Animals, humans, dolls or robots or artificial constructions, those are kind of three uh, categories that the movie works with, and gods being the fourth one. So innocence is being defined as a sinless state of being that's possessed in three different ways by animals, like um, Watan's Basset Hound, creatures on the globe, the elephants in the forest, uh, dolls, or any inanimate object, however um, lifelike, um, the robotic gynoids as just robots. Um, or right at the end of the film, um, Tokusa gives his daughter a present of a doll. Uh, or gods, um, who are mentioned various times, including um, a quote from Psalm 139 in the aeroplane and so on. And animals and inanimate objects are innocent because, however human the latter might seem, they all lack that sentient self-consciousness possessed by humans, although some characters in the film question that, whether there really is a difference. And gods are innocent um, because they have infinite self-consciousness, so they say. And so the question being posed is whether humans who have finite self-consciousness can ever achieve innocence. And having classified these three states of innocence, it forces us to ask if, if which of those states of innocence, if any, any, a human could enter without losing something that's essential to their humanity. In, in order to become innocent, do we have to stop being human and become a doll like in the hacker? or become just an animal, or become a, a god, and sort of transcend everything, a little bit like the major, maybe, uh, at the end of the film. And I think that's the central theme. And it's, there's a suggestion here that the desire for innocence drives humans to expand our consciousness by becoming cyborgs linked to this matrix, creating dolls that are as human as possible. We're trying to idealise the human form through these technological things. Um, so we've got the doll that's trying to be as human as possible and people who are becoming as robotic as you can by cyborgization. Um, yeah, that's how you pronounce it. Um, and these kind of hold out the hope that humans can be idealised into a state of innocence. But they also, both examples, raise this fear that the price of gaining that innocence would be the loss of our humanity. There's a kind of existential catch-22 um, going on here. There's an opening quotation uh, just uh, of the film, which in English says, if our gods and our hopes are nothing but scientific phenomenon, if they're reducible to, to matter and void, as it were, um, then let us admit it must be said that our love is scientific as well, that there is nothing uniquely qualitatively different about humanity from the rest of the world. Um, and Kim the Hacker has this idea that since consciously we know dolls are, the end, are in the end nothing but inanimate objects, they confront us with the fear that we're, in the end, nothing but dolls ourselves. That we are just machines. Um, yeah. So there's a quote from Kim the Hacker. The eeriness of dolls comes solely from the fact that they're completely modelled on human beings. 
In fact, they're nothing but human, really. They make a space for fear of being reduced to simple mechanisms and matter. In other words, they make a space for fear that fundamentally all humans belong to the void. Science seeking to unlock the secret of life also brought about this fear. The notion that nature can be calculated inevitably leads to the conclusion that humans, too, can be reduced to basic mechanical parts. He says. Well, I disagree, but that's his view. Um, and as people become more robot than flesh, they feel increasingly alienated from humanity, past and present. And there's lots of interesting sort of little signs of that in the film. Um, there's an interesting conversation between the chief of Section 9 and Togusa, uh, where he says that um, uh, Bato is reminding him more and more of the major before she vanished, which if you've seen the first film, she's beginning to feel more and more dissociated from humanity. Other signs. Um, all the cars in the film. Why are all the cars in the film like early 20th century cars with uh, high-tech head-up displays? Um, they've kind of, they have this nostalgia for the past because of the nostalgia and so on. And this obsession, yeah, the light's not too good, is it? This obsession in the film with creating inanimate objects that reflect the human and the animal world as well. The, the plane and the kind of way that it's very organic, sort of biomimicry, which we're beginning to get into in engineering uh, now in a big way. Um, the submersible that takes Bato out to the local service place, modelled after a shark, and so on. But lots of examples of technology that's actually very organic uh, yeah, in nature. And then the carnival scene, which I think that is to make clear that humanity has historically sought a form of transcendence through in inhabiting inanimate objects. Whether you do that directly, you put on a costume and you become something else. You become the character, you become the god by putting on the costume. Or indirectly, when you animate the inanimate. Um, like this uh, you know, inanimate animated elephant, elephants in the forest. Uh, resonance again from the wonderful carnival scene and the spot I'm sure now I've mentioned them, all of those resonances in here and all of that comes just after a conversation on the plane about Richard Dawkins ideas about the extended phenotype and means and so they're saying the whole city is, is just an, uh, an externalisation of these of concepts of information that are in people information that builds things it's um, really are religious yearnings that are producing the culture and people are yearning for transcendence. They're, they're, they're trying to, people pretend not to be people putting on masks to make things that are pretending not to be, uh, pretending to be animals when they're not, and so on. And then we've got the, the inanimate objects animated, the, the dogs, um, the animals, and the people putting on masks and so on, and repeatedly in that scene. So there's this blurring kind of of the boundaries between people and, and so on in some people's minds in this in this film. Um, there's a very interesting quote um, from Midnight Eye Reviewer, Jasper Sharp, uh, on the, the back of this film. There's much could be made of Japan's dull obsession from its traditional roots and celebrations such as that as uh, the Hina Matsuri, or Girls' Day, every March the 3rd, um, Dolls Day and the families take out these dolls and they set up little shrines with the dolls on and so on they take out their ornamental figures to ensure the happiness and well-being of their daughters to everyone's uh, favourite synthesised pet the robot dog created by a known as Abo 
the nation seems driven with this urge to reconstruct the real without having to deal with the messy parts. Who was it pointed out that the, uh, the geisha represented the ultimate desire to reduce a woman's role to that of a purely functional living doll? I even heard recently that someone over there had uh, managed to build a life-size robotic female whose chest heaved up and down to emulate her breathing. It would seem that Ocean's vision of the future isn't so far off after all. Uh, this year, 2009, this is HRP4C. I've got some uh, footage of this uh, Japanese android to show you because uh, it's both fascinating and a bit spooky. And also shows some of the progression in technologies from 2006 where you had something rooted to the spot that could kind of gesture about and talk. Maybe his eyes are blinking. <laughs> I think it's very impressive that they managed to get the Android to, to bow without toppling over. That's a lot of processing power, I think, went into that one. Um, but there, and this doll uh, opened the 2009 uh, fashion show uh, in Japan this year. I mean, it walked on stage, sort of said hello, bowed at everyone, turned around and walked off. Um, the makers reckon 20 to 30 years before they got one that can um, actually walk up and down the catwalk and show clothes off and um, replace models with a model on a model. <laughs> um, but there you go. So Japan was a lot of money into doing uh, this kind of thing. And for the naturalist, of course, the metaphysical naturalist, the difference between you and HR4C um, is a matter of quantitative degree, really, rather than qualitative essence. Give us another 30 years and another few billion pounds or whatever, and we will you know, up the processing speed and power and parallel processing and so on, and we'll, we'll miniaturise the motors and all the muscles and so on, and we'll get the controls worked out, and eventually we'll be able to uh, replace you. And Francis Crick, uh, co-discoverer of the clinical shape of DNA, um, went on in later life to do research in consciousness, and he wrote, your joys, your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will, are in fact no more than, nothing buttery there, no more than the behaviour of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their assorted molecules. As Lewis's, Lewis Carroll's Alice might have phrased it, you're nothing but a pack of neurons. And he advances this hypothesis directly in opposition to the view that, that some kind of spirit exists that persists after one's body's death and to some degree embodies the essence of that human being. Um, there's one point uh, in the investigation here we could launch off into a lot of stuff about um, theory of mind, mind-body arguments and so on. I'll just very briefly say that to the degree that his hypothesis here is astonishing, as he calls it himself, it's also, on the face of it, implausible. Um, nobody has the slightest idea how anything material could be conscious, says Jerry Fodor, a leading philosopher of mind and a naturalist. Susan Blackmore, another naturalist, points out objects in the physical world and subjective experience of them seem to be two radically different things. So how can one give rise to the other no one has an answer to this question. Francis Crick himself, in another mood, says there's no easy way of explaining consciousness in terms of known science. How can you explain the redness of red in terms of physics and chemistry? Um, you could look into, I particularly recommend this little slim book by Victor Reppert called C.S. Lewis's Dangerous Idea in Defense of the Argument from Reason, um, where he along 
um, with many other philosophers I can mention, would argue that Crick's astonishing hypothesis is actually self-contradictory in the final analysis. How much store would you put in a hypothesis that's advanced by nothing but a pack of neurons? That's really the question at the nub of this, I think. Uh, so we get to the end of the film, and the Major kind of comes in, her influence is gradually felt, she rescues them from, from Kim, and then helps Basho on the ship. Does she have the right idea? She's kind of shuffled off her mortal coil and her cyborg, cyborg body for this sort of disembodied existence within the Matrix. She's kind of transcended humanity. And Basho asks her if she considers herself to be finally happy now. Just like the chief asked Toby, so are you happy? And I said, are you happy? And her reply, that she says, um, to be happy is a nostalgic value. Um, but at least she is now free of dilemma. She, she has no more kind of physically embedded desires that conflict in her because she's transcended corporal reality. And yet, to be happy is also a nostalgic value. It would seem that the indications are that she's transcended humanity so far that in, in, there's a real sense in which she's, she's no longer human. She's become a god, in a sense. As she gained her innocence, her lack of conflict and so on, at the price of losing something as fundamental as a capacity for being happy. And then she begins to recite, and Basho joins in the poem, that one walk alone committing no sin, very few wishes, like elephants in the forest, finishes Basho. Sort of becoming not human is the way to innocence. And there's an interesting little dialogue right at the end where she enjoins Basho, always remember, wherever you are across the net, I'll be there by your side. It reminds me of Matthew 18, 20. And I remember, wherever, you know, I'll be with you always, or whatever two or three are gathered, and the Lord is as well. Um, it's like she's kind of become Basho's sort of guardian angel, or, or what have you. But only when he's on the net. Yes. But he's, he's a cyborg, so he's always connected in. You see, so... The chief, with his existentialism and so on, he seems to advocate abandoning the search for innocence, sort of give up your desire for a lack of desire. That would be the only way to get it. Um, most of us aren't as happy or as visible as we think we are. The important thing is not to get bored with living your life or having hopes. You've just got to kind of lump it and make the best of it. There is no real solution to this problem. And what C.S. Lewis, when he's talking about the argument from desire, calls, calls the, the way of the, 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 the sceptical, sensible man. Christianity. But I think such stoical resignation doesn't really doesn't solve the problem clearly. It just says lump the problem, put up with the problem. It doesn't try and solve it. Or the fear of death or neither does it answer the fear that we're no more alive than a doll. Discussed by Kim. And then I think it's fascinating that oh she ends the film when Basho and Topes have come home and he, uh, he gets the doll back that the family's been looking after and Topes goes back to the family and he brings this doll as a present to his kid, and the last two images of the film are the doll and the child, and Basho with the dog. Uh, I think it's kind of, to me, it's like oh, she's effectively holding up two no entry signs on the search for innocence. You can't become an inanimate doll, you can't become an inanimate object, you can't just become an animal. Do you have to lump it? Do you have to transcend it so that you're no longer human? Or is there another alternative, would be the question that I would then raise. Um, it's a meditation, this film, highlighting our existential need 
from drawing out all this, I would argue, art. We've got this need within our desire within us for a path to innocence that fulfills rather than eradicates our humanity. That's what the film's telling me. That provides a genuinely human communal existence free from sin and the fear of death. Um, the lack of connectedness between peoples highlighted you know, the various points in the film. But the, the fact that Bato's got this relationship still with the major who he, he still sort of hankers after his old partner. That provides a new state of being which exceeds the simple innocence of animals but which can't be reduced to the atoms in the void levels of dolls. Those are sort of no-entry signs. In other words, come back to my argument at the beginning, innocence is a meditation on the human desire for heaven. What state of existence fulfills these criteria? It's heaven. And so I would kind of draw those kind of links out. You would maybe then get into uh, discussing things like the argument from desire, which was particularly used in various of C.S. Lewis's works, um, his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, is an autobiographical account of his spiritual journey for this fulfilment of this need for transcendent joy, as he called it. And Pilgrim's Regress is a kind of novelised version of someone going on that story. He talks about it in Mere Christianity, in The Weight of Glory, a sermon, and so on. But various modern philosophers have picked up on this theme. Um, I know a guy who did his PhD work at Sheffield University, partly on the philosophy of C.S. Lewis, and he's got stuff online that you can track down, a guy called Stephen uh, Lovell. Stephen Lovell. Uh, find online C.S. Lewis's argument from Desire. He's been updating it uh, in modern philosophical categories. But here's just a quote from C. Stephen Evans, which is quite accessible. And he argues, the fact that people in general have a need for water is strong evidence that there is such a thing as water. Though this does not imply that an individual person will get water on any specific occasion. You, know, you might die of thirst, but the very fact that you've been dying of thirst proves that you have a need for water. And doesn't that indicate that there is such a thing as water that will fulfil that innate need? In a similar manner, the fact that we have a deep, innate need to believe in and find God, or this form of transcendent existence that will fulfil our humanity rather than eradicate it. We've got this need for heaven, I think, in the broader category. Doesn't that strongly suggest that God's real? Though, of course, this doesn't mean that any of us will actually discover God and establish a relationship with him. It would be very odd indeed if we had a fundamental need for something that doesn't exist. Surely the argument about the desire for water depends on us having or us knowing that our desire is satisfied by water, and therefore we know that it's a desire for water. And so could we yeah. then say, in some sense, that we know that the desire we have is a desire for God because some people have experienced it? Yes, there's kind of two routes that you can take the argument. One is a sort of process of elimination, saying, I've got this need, I'm trying to fulfil the need, as people do with all sorts of things, fame, money, power, sex, or whatever, and then finding out that that thing doesn't actually fulfil you, and so you move on, and you're kind of building up an inductive argument that actually there's nothing in the world we know from human experience that fulfils that desire if it's reasonable to think that it must have a fulfilment, then it becomes reasonable to think that it must be a desire for something beyond the world that's kind of one reason, so it's sort of negative it's sort of, there's this, as Pascal talked about, about the God-shaped hole in the human 
part and kind of by negative. But also, as I say, positively, you can say, just as, you know, maybe you, you really want a drink and I give you a, a thimble of water, and you go, I, I now know that's what will satisfy me. It doesn't stop you being thirsty because it wasn't enough. But you've got a little taste of it and you know, as soon as you have it, you know, that's what you needed. Oh, what a relief. And in the same kind of way, although our desire for heaven can't be f- completely fulfilled until the afterlife, you get enough of a sense of, ah, this is what fulfills it when you, for those people who come into relationship with God, and their testimony is, this is what we were looking for. This is what begins to satiate that desire. That it's reasonable to think that, that more of God, more of the same thing, just like more water, would satiate the desire in the end. So there's a sort of, via negative theology way and a a sort of positive indication route uh, as well that you can argue. Yeah, another philosopher to look into on this is a Catholic philosopher you may have heard of in America called Peter Kreeft, who's a bit of a C.S. Lewis fan, uh, and he's done some work. Peter Kreeft wrote a wonderful book um, called Heaven, The Heart's Deepest Longing, um, which is a wonderful uh, meditation on the human desire for heaven, and it includes an appendix defending Lewis's argument for desire uh, for heaven. Um, so there are a number, number of contemporary philosophers who have kind of built on the stuff that Lewis did on it. And of course he was drawing on Pascal and right back to Augustine's um, confessions, where he says, uh, um, Oh Lord, our hearts are restless, um, and they, they find no rest until they rest in me. Or I indeed go back to Ecclesiastes in the Bible. Or um, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you, O God. Psalms. Yeah, so it's, it's building on a nice, solid biblical tradition. This argument.